Hi, Neurotransmissions listeners. This is Misha, and I'm asking you for your help to make our podcast even better. Please go to neuropodcast.org, scroll down all the way to the bottom, and click on our survey. It'll take you two minutes or less and give you a chance to provide input on future episodes and more. Plus, if you leave us your email address, we will be choosing some listeners at random to receive a Neurotransmissions t-shirt. Whether you love the podcast or have ideas to improve it, go to neuropodcast.org, scroll to the bottom, and take our survey. Welcome to a very Brazilian episode of Neurotransmissions. We are going to sit down today with Dr. Roberto Lent. But first, let's introduce our guest host, uh, Elena Decker. Uh, hi, Elena. Hello. Elena is uh, in communications here in the Institute, uh, and uh, she actually came in as a postdoc. So, Elena, tell us about uh, where you came from and how you got here. I came from Brazil. I did my PhD uh, half in Brazil, half in Canada. After that, I did a, a three years postdoc uh, in Oregon, studying um, transport of organelles. And I joined uh, MPFI in 2012 uh, to work with Ryohi Asuda with synaptic plasticity. It's been two years that I transitioned to the Office of Scientific Communications of our institute to, to help translating the discoveries of our scientists to different levels. So explaining the science that we do to everybody else. I'm here too. I'm Joe. Um, I'm, Hi, Joe. I'm also going to stick around for this interview. And uh, Helena, welcome to the program. It's great to have you here. Thank you. And I'm Misha, I guess. <laughs> um, so a little bit about our guest today, uh, Roberto Lent. He's the director of the ICB, or an English Institute for Biomedical Science in Rio de Janeiro. Also, Roberto is the coordinator of a large project uh, in Brazil that involves uh, many labs and researchers uh, to bring science uh, to the education system. He uh, has done a lot of work to bring uh, science in general, really, but especially neuroscience to Brazil um, and does a lot of uh, not just um, great science, but also uh, educational outreach for the general public. I'm also very excited because we've uh, we've talked a lot about uh, connectomics and the connectome, and Dr. Uh, Lent works on something called the disconnectome, so we'll get to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, and he also has sort of a different philosophical approach uh, when it comes to thinking about the usefulness of connectomics. So we are uh, ever adding to our complex library of discussions on connectomics, and we'll, this will be no exception, I'm sure. But if you're not into that, that's not the only thing we'll talk about. It'll be really cool. Yeah. Okay. All right. Enjoy. Okay. So today we have a very uh, special guest coming all the way from Rio de Janeiro. Uh, Professor Roberto Lent uh, is here to talk about connectomes and disconnectomes and um, all sorts of interesting stuff. And we actually have a really uh, interesting question to ask you, which is, you know, if you're a college student or maybe even a high school student and you're taking neuroscience 101, one of the first things that people tell you in these classes is that the human brain has hundred billion neurons. And this is just a number that gets thrown out there. Um, but you have taken very painstaking efforts to find out exactly the, the, the right count of, of neurons that we have in the brain. So how did you attack that question and what did you find out? 
Okay, let me first tell you uh, how this, uh, all this uh, research line originated. I was writing a book, a textbook for students, and the, the title of the book was supposed to be 100 billion neurons. And in fact, it was 100 billion neurons. And I invited a colleague who was uh, coming back from his, her doctoral uh, studies in, in, in Germany, actually, and um, and I asked her to write uh, some of the some boxes of the book, and she was interested in the book. And then, and at a certain point, uh, she asked me, uh, "Are you sure the number is that? Are you sure we have uh, one uh, one hundred billion uh, neurons?" And I was kind of. Uh, surprised, and I we went both of us together uh, to the literature, and we uh, came to the conclusion that there was no evidence, uh, no experimental evidence for that. Uh, it was a number that was was spread in in the literature. Everybody, because it's very appealing, it's a round number, one hundred billion neurons. So it doesn't come from like Cajal or somebody. Uh, nobody like, knows uh, where has it come back from. Back of the envelope calculation yeah. of density or nobody something. Nobody knows. Yeah. It's just a round number that uh, uh, spread and, and became uh, a dogma. Mm -hmm. My book was already published with that title. And we decided that we would check for that number. And... Uh, uh, the, the name of my collaborator is Susanna Ercolano Huzel, who's now working at Vanderbilt University in the U.S. And she developed a, a very clever method to um, um, go after this number, to try to check if the number is all right, correct or not. And uh, the method is uh, very simple. It uh, requires transforming the brain tissue into a soup of uh, nuclei. So we destroy the cell membrane, and then we end up with the pure suspension of uh, nuclei. And uh, this, this suspension is mixed and stirred so that it becomes homogeneous. And we take a sample and go to the microscope and since the, the, the suspension is homogeneous, the sample is very representative of the whole thing. And then, uh, since we have the whole region uh, suspended, transformed into a suspension of nucleus, of nuclei, we, are, uh, we have access to the volume of the solution. So we just uh, measure a sample, uh, the, um, the number of neurons in the sample, and multiply by the volume, and you have the total amount of neurons. Um, so when we did that, we arrived at a 15% uh, lower figure than the 100 billion neurons. Um, then uh, I faced the funny situation, what should I do with the title of my book? <laughs> Retraction. <laughs> and then uh, the, the solution was to place an interrogation mark after the, <laughs> after the title. So it becomes 100 billion neurons yeah. with an interrogation mark. And so the, this technique that uh, you're describing, um, this is uh, isotropic fractionization. Um, and you've uh, gone on with this technique to actually measure the, uh, the amount of cells in different parts of the brain. You were looking at uh, 
the differences between genders. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about your findings there? Yeah, we found that um, by analyzing uh, differences in, between uh, women's brain and men's brain, that there are differences in number in particular regions. Uh, for instance, in the olfactory bulb, women have about uh, 40 to 50 percent more neurons. Uh, and this correlates a little bit with some abilities of women to perceive uh, orders uh, in a better way than, than men. This is uh, something that has been uh, studied uh, with um, uh, neuropsychological or psychological uh, tests and, and improved, uh, correlated somehow with this um, difference in the number of neurons. Uh, the other difference now uh, favor if I can say that, uh, man is uh, a, a larger number of neurons in the uh, medial temporal lobe uh, within which uh, uh, lies the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is related to spatial memory. So some people say that this is correlated with the fact that uh, men ha have a better performance in um, uh, spatial functions uh, related to the external environment. They can locate themselves better in, in, in space than uh, women. Um, my wife, I, I play with my wife because uh, she points with her left hand. Uh, Roberto, turn right, turn right, but making the gesture with her left hand. <laughs> and, uh, well, it's maybe a little um, folkloric. But um, uh, uh, th there may be a relation between uh, the um, uh, greater amount of neurons in the medial temporal lobe that we found in men correlated with their uh, abilities, spatial abilities. Also, we um, uh, tried to quantify the number of neurons in uh, people along aging. And we saw that number of neurons uh, decreased a little bit and they decrease even more if the person uh, gets uh, demented uh, as a result of Alzheimer's disease. Do, do, are there changes in, uh, you know, the amount of cells in different parts of the brain with aging? Or Yeah, in the frontal lobe and the, in the medial temporal lobe. And these are exactly the, the regions that are uh, more, uh, most uh, vulnerable to to the degenerative changes uh, by Alzheimer's disease, caused by Alzheimer's disease. So to what extent can we link uh, the basically amount of tissue, amount of, amount of neurons in a specific area of the brain to uh, function? So for example, you know, uh, uh, off the top of my head, I can think of dolphins have these enormous brains, but I think I can do, you know, calculus better than a dolphin. Um, so why aren't dolphins smarter than me, even though they have huge brain, you know, is, uh, uh, can you uh, kind of shed some light on, or I guess, speculate on, for example, different animal brain sizes and, and what that actually means? Yes, your, 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 your question is very important because there's no direct correlation between the number of neurons and the um, uh, functional uh, or psychological or cognitive uh, abilities of the, of the animal or, or, or the person. Uh, it's because uh, there are other factors that influence these pro these functions, like uh, you know the amount of synapses, uh, the 
the complexity of the neuron itself, because just measuring or quantifying the number of neurons doesn't tell you uh, very much or very uh, uh, very deeply uh, what the processing of information can be achieved. So you're right, uh, the, the number of neurons is not directly correlated with, uh, with function. And um, what uh, only, the only thing we can make is uh, a very speculative uh, uh, correlation. But we, we, we cannot say for sure that one thing is, cause, is the cause of the other. And where do you get these uh, brain samples from? It's kind of an interesting question. Like, we, you, you're using human brains. What, what is the source of human brains? Like, how do, you, how do you get these subjects? Well, the state of Sao Paulo in Brazil has developed a very uh, interesting and, and, and useful system for many purposes. It's uh, the Sao Paulo Brain Bank. Uh, it uh, functions uh, at the University of Sao Paulo, and it uh, is connected to the health system of Sao Paulo. And it functions the following way. Uh, when someone dies of nonviolent cause, but a known cause, it is uh, very difficult, if not impossible, for the doctor to state uh, what is the cause of death. So uh, when he doesn't know, he just, uh, you know, randomly assigns a cause like, you know, infarct or whatever, because this has, has to be written in the death certificate of the person. But this is no, no good for the family, no good for the statistics. So Sao Paulo developed a system uh, by which uh, anyone who dies of uh, um, nonviolent causes, uh, but unknown causes, uh, is taken to this uh, service, which is called the uh, Death uh, Verification Service, if, I, if I'm translating well. Now, um, they do, they receive uh, 13, about 13,000 uh, corpses per year. And uh, they do autopsies and they do uh, uh, magnetic resonance imaging to determine the possible cause of uh, death of these uh, uh, people that, uh, that go there. Now, there's a, there's a team uh, pertaining to the brain bank that approach the family and ask for donation of the, of the brains of their uh, relatives that, uh, that have uh, deceased. Um, and it's more than 90%, uh, 90% of, of these uh, people accept to donate the brain. So the, uh, uh, the brain is removed and um, it may be preserved with the, the particular uh, substances that are preservatives for the, the, the architecture of the brain called fixatives. And at the same time, uh, a team of psychologists uh, approach the family and, um, and ask them uh, standard questions uh, concerning uh, the health um, uh, characteristics of, of, of that person who died. So in the end, uh, we have access to a brain uh, that we know uh, pertained to a person who was uh, demented uh, in such and such degree, uh, another person who uh, was schizophrenic, a third person who 
was obese, uh, whatever. So we have all the characteristics, uh, physical and psychological, of the deceased person. So we can study that brain knowing exactly the characteristics of the owner of it, of, of, the, of the brain. So, so that's uh, what we made use of to our research. With samples coming in like this, is it difficult to avoid, uh, I guess, age bias uh, in your research? So I have to assume that when you have brains coming in with uh, kind of uh, unverified causes of death, a lot of the uh, subjects tend to be older. So if you're, for example, how much basically uh, can you compare young versus old brains? You know? Well, there's a predominance of uh, old brains in that system because uh, young people usually don't uh, die of natural, natural causes, of nonviolent causes. So it's uh, much rarer to, to get brains from young people from the system. But we have some. There are some. Are you able to do any kind of like developmental type stuff? Like do you get brains, you know, kind of on the opposite end of what Misha's talking about? Just No, no it's, it's only adult brains that go to the system because uh, kids, uh, children brain, they go to different hospitals and they have different, uh, according to law, it's to the law, to the Brazilian law, they can't go to this particular system of uh, autopsies and so on. And, and on top of that, it's much... Uh, um, more, there's a lot of suffering for the family when they lose uh, children. Uh, um, so the 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 proportion of uh, parents that uh, authorize us to use the, the brains of their kids is very low. So uh, we have difficulty in uh, uh, in studying uh, very young brains for this reason. Okay, so we're talking about uh, the cellular makeup of the uh, of the brain, but um, you also actually do a lot of research into uh, how these long distance connections between the cells um, shape function in the brain. So specifically, you talk about something called the disconnectome. Now we're familiar uh, a bit on this, uh, or I think listeners of the show should be familiar with connectomics, right? Uh, there's a big um, search now to figure out how different areas are connected or tend to be connected in fairly normal brains. Um, but you kind of look on the flip side of that uh, and you call it the disconnectome, right? right? So can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, well, by studying brains under different conditions, and uh, in this case, we don't study dead brains, so we study living brains by using neuroimaging. So uh, we can study the connections uh, of these brains uh, with different techniques, different imaging techniques. And we define these connections. Uh, actually, the, the, the technical jargon says, uh, uses the term connectivity. So you can study structural connectivities or uh, functional connectivities. Uh, we, you study... Uh, uh, functional connectivities by relating different regions that fire together, that are active in synchrony. So if you have two regions in the brain that uh, are active uh, synchronically at the same time, it is supposed that they are talking to each other because they are uh, active uh, uh, the same way, in the same pattern of activity. This is functional connectivity. The other way to uh, 
to um, unravel the pathways of the brain is to study what we call the structural connectivity. And this means uh, it's a, another imaging technique that uh, measures the diffusion of water, uh, water molecules in the tissue. For instance, if you throw a, a, a dye in a, a glass of water, let's say a blue dye in a, va a vase of water, you'll see gradually that the blue dye in, in, in a, a glass of water uh, becomes uh, uniformly blue because the diffusion of the, of the dye is radial in all directions. But if you, if you put um, uh, the same dye in a, in a palm heart, you will notice that uh, the diffusion will be uh, along uh, the, the long axis of the palm heart mm -hmm. because there are many layers and uh, the water will diffuse along the length of the palm heart and won't be able to traverse the, the layers uh, so it won't uh, diffuse uh, radially. So it has like a path of least resistance kind of... Right, yeah. that's exactly... Uh, so the same rationale can be applied to the brain. When you look at the tracts, there are many parallel fibers in that tract. So the water within tend to diffuse in, in parallel uh, directions uh, as the fibers arranged in, in uh, compacted in, in, in a nerve, for instance, or in a tract mm -hmm. in, the, in the brain. But the water uh, diffuses radially if you are in other regions of the brain where no tracts exist, no parallel fib fibers exist. And this can be measured by the imaging uh, apparatus. And, uh, and if we do that, we can, uh, by uh, uh, using computer graphics, you can reconstruct the uh, pathways of the brain, what is called the white matter of the brain. So you can have access to, the, to what uh, I call the structural connectivity of the brain. So you can uh, take a, a living person, you, the, the person is, goes inside the, the MRI, the magnetic resonance imaging apparatus, and uh, you can reconstruct uh, graphically all the pathways of his brain. Okay, so uh, doing that, uh, you can uh, reconstruct and, and, and have access to a great number of connections between different regions of the brain. Now, uh, in my studies, in the studies I do in the lab, what we discovered is that in certain conditions of developmental uh, problems of uh, 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 some kids, or in other cases where there's a, an external interference with the body of the person, like a, an arm amputation, the brain changes, the brain has to adapt. And uh, the, these changes uh, end up by uh, rewiring uh, the, the connections, the structural connection, and we see that in the, in the imaging system. So that's what uh, I call a disconnectome. So instead of seeing the pattern of uh, connections uh, that we see in a normal person, we now uh, will see a completely different uh, set of connections uh, distributed in different regions. What are the conditions or pathological conditions uh, that uh, all these circuits are uh, altered? Yeah, so, you know, like you mentioned, the 
the amputees, for instance, um, you know? Well, the people who have uh, amputated limbs, they have, they developed a phenomenon that is very um, amazing, very uh, interesting, and for them it's not so, so good, which is called uh, the phantom limb phenomenon. So they feel uh, different sensations that they uh, attribute to the missing limb. The limb is no, no longer there, but they feel sensations, they feel um, pain sometimes. They, they feel that they, their limb uh, is in very weird uh, positions. They can be positioned uh, in the back of their bodies, uh, completely impossible positions. And it's very hard to, to take care of that uh, phenomenon clinically. So they simply have it and, and there's nothing to do. So there, there has been a, a lot of interest uh, to review uh, what's the brain mechanisms that are responsible for this phenomenon. And the idea is to develop the ways of treating it. So uh, what uh, we discovered, not my group, but uh, many different researchers, is that there's, since uh, there's a lack of one part of the body, could be a limb, can be a, a breast in, in women, and can be other organs, uh, internal organs. What happens is that uh, there's an empty, a functionally empty space in the cerebral cortex because the limb or the part no longer exists, but the neurons have not died. The neurons who uh, formerly uh, received the information from that limb or for that, from that organ uh, so they, the region is occupied by neighboring regions that represent other parts of the body. So if, uh, if the person has, a, let's say, an arm amputated, uh, what happens is that the chin region occupies that space in the cortex. So whenever a person uh, has a stimulation in the chin, even if it's only uh, uh, the effect of wind, the sensation that he has is that uh, his missing limb was stimulated. Mm. So there's a reorganization of the cortex, the cerebral cortex, and uh, we were interested in knowing whether the connections between the two hemispheres of the brain are somehow impacted by this uh, missing part. And the conclusion is that yes, uh, it is. Um, the so-called corpus callosum, which is the part of the white matter, uh, the set of fibers that connect both hemispheres, they, are, uh, they have a, a defect, uh, they acquire a defect on their microstructure. And since they are responsible for stabilizing the maps in the two hemispheres, when they, are, um, uh, they have uh, their structure... Uh, defective, so to say, the borders of the map that they help to maintain are no longer controlled and regulated. So they, they tend to be expanded. They, some of them shrink and some others expand. So this creates an anomaly uh, for the person because uh, he now will interpret a region as, uh, as being stimulated by a part of the body that is not really stimulated. And this is the phantom limb phenomenon. So when we think about the, uh, like the somatosensory cortex or you know, the, 
the sensory homunculus of the body. Like say I have my, my right arm amputated. Are there neurons in, you know, the part of the brain representing my right arm that are talking to the neurons in my brain that represent the left arm? How, how specific is that hemisphere, interhemispheric connectivity? It's supposed to be a point-to-point specificity. So my uh, thumb region in the cortex speaks to the, the thumb of the other side. So left thumb speaks to the right thumb. In, and this is uh, an, an information that goes through the corpus callosum. Now, if I no longer have the thumb, the other side won't have uh, what to say to the opposite side. Right. So the neurons representing the amputated thumb still are still there. And uh, what happens is that the second finger region invades the thumb region. The result is that when I stimulate the second finger, my feeling is that I stimulated the thumb, hmm. which is no longer there. And this is the phantom limb. And, and, and everything is controlled by the interhemispheric uh, connections uh, through the corpus callosum. So when like uh, somebody has an amputation and they feel pain in their right arm, it's not necessarily like a spontaneous uh, occurrence. It might be like a referred phenomena from some other part of the body that's neighboring. Yep. I see. Exactly. Okay. And this crosstalk uh, through the actual corpus callosum, um, it's uh, important for quite a lot of other things. So you uh, you talk about phantom limb, but if um, if the limb is intact, but the corpus callosum in some patients is actually cut. You talked earlier about how this uh, has been shown in a lot of research. You know, when when you do cut the corpus callosum, patients see something called, uh, for example, hemineglect, right? So um, they can look at a scene in front of them, uh, but they can only describe the right side of it because the uh, information from the left side um, is not reaching the uh, their speech centers, which are in the right part of the brain. Could I interrupt uh, mm-hmm. for a minute? Yeah. <clears throat> I think you made a mistake yeah, well, in the so beginning because it's say? not hemi-neglect that they have, the split brains. Yeah. The first split, split brain uh, patients were appearing to the neurologists. Uh, they couldn't identify any symptom in them. The interhemispheric disconnection syndrome was not identified right. because they responded perfectly normal uh, to the neurological uh, examination. And the reason is, for instance, if you look at the right and left hemifields, you move your eyes. So uh, moving your eyes, you're able to put the right side of the the field projecting to both hemispheres, simply moving the eye. So what Sperry did is that he forced uh, the uh, patient to fixate in the center of the screen and then projected the, the uh, left uh, hemifield and right hemifield images uh, less than 150 milliseconds so that uh, the person wouldn't have the time to move the eyes. And then uh, the syndrome was revealed. You see, hemineglect is a different thing. It arises when there's an, a, a lesion in, in one of the hemispheres and so the person is not able to identify a whole side of his body and you know, the one side of the environment and so on. It's not uh, due to, to, to split brain uh, mechanisms. 
but there are also patients that do have uh, a cut corpus callosum or they were uh, born without a corpus callosum and you found and, and you've seen that they don't have this problem um, so they have a very different kind of disconnectome a very different sort of rewiring um, so how uh, how does this happen how is it that our brains know to correct for what is such a, otherwise a huge uh, deficit of connection, basically. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very interesting. This was discovered by Roger Sperry, the same uh, uh, researcher from California who uh, described the disconnection syndrome of split brain. Uh, he had access to a, a college student that had an accident and uh, went to the hospital <clears throat> and um, just by uh, coincidence, she had uh, she was diagnosed diagnosed as lacking her corpus callosum from birth, not due to the accident, but he, she was born without it. So Sperry was very interested and uh, did the same tests that he applied to the split brains, those who had their corpus callosum cut surgically uh, as a therapy for epilepsy. And in that college student with a genesis of the corpus callosum, he discovered that there, there was no uh, uh, intrahemispheric syndrome. So the, the, there was uh, uh, an apparent uh, connectivity between the two sides of the brain. But how come, since the, the person didn't have the corpus callosum? So the corpus callosum has 200 million fibers and the person lacks 200 million fibers between the hemispheres and still is able to transfer information from one side to the other. There's no explanation, a lot of, uh, of uh, hypothesis, and we decided to go after that question and took some uh, uh, 10 or 11, uh, now 11 cases of uh, uh, people with a genesis of the corpus callosum and we discovered that they develop alternative connections between the hemispheres. So instead, since they didn't have the corpus callosum, uh, uh, during development, uh, some regions at least of their cerebral cortex uh, grew their fibers uh, deep uh, into different regions of the cortex and made it across the midline and uh, return to the other hemisphere to innervate the right uh, regions of the cortex. So sort of like in the, in the absence of the normal interhemisphere connectivity, the brain compensated somehow and formed these new pathways. Right, right. That's interesting. Right. So we worked with these people and we determined that not only they have this uh, new connectivity that formed during development, they uh, uh, now uh, they are able to transmit information that is uh, attributed to that particular uh, bundle of fibers that we discovered. So uh, there was a link between the structural connectivity that they have, what I call the disconnectome, and the function of the connected regions in the cerebral cortex. Can you share with us a little bit of the goals of the Brazilian initiative to bring science uh, to the education system? Yeah, good question. I, I, 
I'm very passionate about this uh, uh, alternative for research. I'm a doctor, I'm an MD, and uh, I, uh, I developed all my career working with neuroplasticity, that, that is the capacity uh, of the brain to change uh, itself um, according to responding to the environment and so on, as we discussed. Uh, but uh, I related uh, that uh, all time to uh, health so and to diseases. And all of a sudden, I uh, was invited to go to a meeting in Shanghai, China, and uh, they discussed there uh, how neuroplasticity could be applied to education, because what you do in education is to change the environment or to structure the environment so that you can stimulate the brain of the student uh, to change and to acquire knowledge and to change uh, behavior, etc. So that's what education is about. So um, in that meeting, only the United States was present, uh, the, uh, China, uh, Australia, and Brazil. Um, so apparently, the other countries have not discovered this uh, possibility. It becomes uh, known as science of learning in this country, the United States. There's a special program from the National Science Foundation called the Science of Learning Program. They fund uh, about 10 or 12 uh, centers in different universities of uh, uh, the, the United States that, are, that do research that can be translated to education. And this is a form of translational research. Um, in health, uh, we are used to, to employ the expression from the bench to bedside, meaning that uh, we can work uh, in basic science with uh, issues, uh, um, uh, topics, themes that at uh, a certain point uh, will revert uh, into uh, therapeutic uh, alternatives for different diseases, etc. So this is called translational medicine or translational research to health. And uh, we now uh, can uh, employ the same strategy for education. So we can uh, develop a, a system of uh, funding research and stimulate a translational research applied or applicable somehow to education. Instead of like bench to bedside, it's sort of like bench to classroom. That's sort of, right. Yeah. That's right. And so, um, for instance, people in this uh, Max Planck Institute, they study synaptic plasticity, which is very relevant to learning. Um, and perhaps um, uh, learning can be improved if we uh, know better uh, how it is, uh, how it occurs in the brain and uh, in different regions of the brain, there's motor learning, sensory learning, visual learning, uh, uh, reading learning, and so on. And this involves uh, different regions of the brain. And if we know how these uh, mechanisms take place in these different regions, we can interfere uh, on them in favor of education. So in my country, we decided to create a network of researchers uh, that um, would uh, pursue this goal. 
And we now have 85 uh, research groups in different states of the country that uh, is trying to orient um, their research according to this kind of uh, strategy, doing translational research to education. And what are the different areas that these labs that are participating study? Well, there are many different uh, ways. For instance, a lot of neuroscience psychology, linguistics, um, computer science. You know, uh, there are many computer uh, devices uh, that can be used uh, uh, to foster education. Um, uh, mathematics, uh, there's a lot of uh, neural networks uh, research that mathematicians uh, like to work on. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, physiotherapists, uh, it's important uh, to uh, work uh, on uh, the influence of uh, physical exercise and learning. It's not only a, a matter of health, of improving your uh, health, but it's already very well known that uh, physical exercise improves learning, not only physical health. So physiotherapists and, and people working with, with motor system in general are involved in, uh, in uh, creating uh, procedures and devices to improve uh, motor learning or learning in general. Uh, just to add one last bit, um, you've actually even approached this education um, initiative from a different side. You've actually written uh, a couple of children's books, uh, yeah. as far as I understand. How, do, how did you get into that? How did you decide to do that? Well, it was uh, long ago. It's um, uh, I wanted to popularize neuroscience to kids. And so I created uh, some characters, uh, which are different types of neurons. Uh, there's a, a cerebellar neuron, a cortical neuron, a visual neuron, a motor neuron. They all have uh, funny names and, and, and they uh, live in the brain of a, of a boy. And uh, so in one of the books, the boy uh, falls in love with the girl. So I explore the neurons, the emotion, uh, neurons that belong to the emotional regions of the brain. And uh, so the neurons uh, talk to themselves uh, when um, the boy uh, looks at the girl and gets excited about <laughs> uh, the, 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 his, his own emotions and so on. So the... the uh, I, I wrote five books of a collection called uh, The Adventures of a Memory Neuron, who, who the, the memory neuron is the leader of the, the group of neurons. Uh, so it's, and it, it was transformed in a theater play. Uh, and it, really? Yeah, oh, performed great. in Rio. Uh, well, on that note, um, we'd like to thank you very much for sitting down and talking with us. Thank you for yeah, the thanks. opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Neurotransmissions. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and now on Spotify. Connect with us on Twitter at Neuropodcast and at Facebook.com slash Neuropodcast. This has been a production of the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience. What's shaking? It's my heart. You need to go to the doctor. Hey, Neurotransmissions listeners, I'm Misha, and I am asking for your help to get our podcast even better. I know you guys love our podcast, but, you know, there's always room for improvement. 
please go to neuropodcast.org, scroll all the way to the bottom, click our survey. It'll take you like two minutes or less. It could take you one minute and 59 seconds, one minute and 58 seconds, all of those. Give you the chance to provide, it'll give you the chance to provide input on future episodes. Uh, plus, you know, if you leave us your email address, we're not going to, you know, go on Facebook and tell everybody what your email address is. No, no, no. We're going to pick a random one and maybe, a, you know, a couple of random ones if we're feeling really good. And uh, we're going to send out some neurotransmissions t-shirts to the email. So open up your inboxes. You know what I mean? Whether you love the podcast or have ideas to improve it, please go to neuropodcast.org, scroll to the bottom and take your survey.